two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Hello there. Thanks again, Rebecca. Welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Cole. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And this is take two <laughs> on our look at David Bowen. Yeah, it's another lost now, episode. <laughs> yes. So, in his nearly 50-year music career, David Bowie had one of the most adventurous and eclectic careers going. He, instead of following the dictates of the marketplace, instead followed wherever his instincts and his heart desired. And he went into all kinds of genres as a result, from the space folk that he started with, to glam rock, to plastic soul, to the thin white duke era, to industrial music, and to pop. You name it, Bowie dove into it, feet first. And probably ahead of everybody else. Yes. And while his film career was not as influential or as prolific as his music career, it was equally adventurous and eclectic. Although he did take roles that traded in on his image, such as his memorable cameo in Zoolander, where he played himself mm-hmm. calling off the fashion walk-off between Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson's male model characters. More often than not, again, he chose roles and movies that seemed to interest whatever he thought, whatever his tastes were. And he worked with a variety of directors, including Nicholas Rogue and Nagisa Oshima, and worked in a variety of genres, from science fiction to black comedy. He also, in 1986 appeared in a couple of musicals, and those are the movies that we're going to talk about today. Absolute Beginners, directed by Julian Temple, and The Labyrinth, directed by Jim Henson. In both movies, Bowie also plays the villain, and he wrote and performed songs for each movie as well. The other thing both movies have in common, sadly, and considering the fact that this was what is generally considered the weakest part of Bowie's musical career this time period, both of these movies did not do well with critics and audiences at the time. But I happen to love both movies, and I hope to convince you of their merits by the end of this episode. So without further further ado, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Absolute Beginners. Yes, I am. It is 1958, and the wartime babies in the UK, well, everywhere really, but this movie is set in the UK, they're being recognized as a kind of cultural and economic force for the first time. We first meet with Eddie O'Connell as Colin, a 19-year-old aspiring photographer who introduces us to the nightlife in the Notting Hill area of London, and that's through a very long very choreographed tracking shot that introduces us briefly to most of the side characters in the film. And it also establishes that there's a heat wave going on. Also that Colin will photograph pretty much anything if it'll keep him in pocket money. Colin has been dating Suzette, who's played by Patsy Kensett. 
She is an aspiring fashion designer who's been working as an assistant to Henley of Mayfair, who, despite being called dressmaker to the queen, has his most recent designs appear to be falling out of favor. Uh, Henley is played incidentally by James Fox. While Colin and Suzette want to have some kind of future together, she thinks he may be a little bit on the unreliable side and that he doesn't have aspirations. But this isn't quite the case. Colin doesn't think that money is the root of all evil, but he doesn't like some of the things that people go through to get it. Now, Colin is a genuine idealist and that he believes in an egalitarian society. And he lives in this terribly rundown neighborhood with his black roommate who's named Cool. Uh, and while everyone we see is decidedly lower class, Cool kind of digs them for being who they are. And before I forget, uh, Cool is played by Tony Hippolyte. Susan arranges for Colin to do a photo shoot for Harry Charms who is a music promoter, and he's on the cutting edge of what's hot. Uh, he is played by Lionel Blair. Colin is led to a studio where he's asked to take pictures of the next big thing, a 14-year-old boy named Baby Boom, who's played by Chris Pitt. After the show, he is to meet with Suzette at Henley's fashion show. Suzette is frantically working backstage to get the models into their costume, while Henley is doing the commentary out front. And it's pretty clear that his designs are considered old-fashioned, and the show isn't going very well. Suzette, on the floor getting models into their shoes, gets caught in one girl's outfit and she is dragged out on stage. She makes the most of the mishap by turning it into a dance number that showcases her modification of a couple of Henley's designs. During all the mayhem, Colin shows up and he is stopped by the doorman. When Henley sees that it's Colin, he turns him away personally. After the show, Henley offers to take Suzette to Paris to meet the big designers. Now, Colin and Suzette later on meet in a cafe, and she's angry with him for not showing up, and she doesn't believe that he wasn't permitted to get inside. Through a musical number, she breaks up with him. Colin mopes around for a few days, and during that time, we see that Suzette might be dating a series of black guys. Eventually, we see him go to his parents' house to use the dark room he had created in the old bomb shelter. His father and his stepmother are running a rather chaotic boarding house, which we get to see as a kind of life-size dollhouse. His stepbrother lives there as well, sleeping in the dark room. In a song that's more or less the centerpiece of Ray Davies' appearance in the film, we learn that Colin's father knows that his wife is fooling around on him, but he allows everyone to think he's kind of dumb so that they'll leave him alone to work on his history of the Pimlico neighborhood. That's a project that we think will never quite be finished. And as we saw with Wild Wild Life in a previous episode, quiet life in this film is the basis for the song's MTV video. Colin is brought to a party where we where he meets up with Hoplite, who's played by Joe McKenna. Hoplite is fabulously gay, but he escorts Colin through the party to meet some of the people, including its host, American gossip columnist uh, Dito Lament, who plies him with drinks. Various people around the party are taking notice of him one way or another and giving him their phone numbers. One of these is Vendy's Partners, played by David Bowie. Suzette is at the party too, but it's here that we learn that she's now engaged to Henley. Vendice approaches Colin and invites him to his office. He shows Colin examples of stuff he's been working on, and one of them is a high-rise building for newlyweds, as he describes it. 
He says, it's ugly, but it's lucrative. Vendis has seen Colin's work and wants to offer him a job in marketing. He convinces Colin in a scene that old Hollywood would call a big production number, uh, including dancing on a giant typewriter keyboard and sitting atop a spinning globe. I should also note that we've been starting to see scenes of social discontent in the area. People are being evicted from their apartments in Pimlico, and buildings are being marked off as sold. But there are also signs of something maybe more nefarious going on, as the Teddy Boys, who are referred to as only Teds in this film, have been taking to more violent action to push specifically the black families out of the area. We also see a man identified only as the Fanatic, and played by Stephen Burkhoff, openly proclaiming white supremacy in Great Britain. Cool has some idea of what's going on and tries to convince Colin that not everything is all sunshine and lollipops, but while Colin is a little disturbed by what he's seeing, he thinks it'll all blow over. Now, Colin is part of the big time. He's making money and he's dressing sharp, but he's still spending time down in Notting Hill visiting the clubs and such. And it's in one such club where Colin is getting drunk and probably a little stoned besides that we get another set piece featuring Charday as Athena Duncannon singing a song called Killer Blow. Uh, we learned during that song that Colin figures out Suzette is actually married Henley. He leaves in a drunken fury and he crashes his Vespa scooter, but he make, manages to make it back to his apartment. Colin finally figures out long, long after the audience does that the people are being pushed out of Pimlico so that the buildings can be torn down and the high-rise apartment we saw in the office can be constructed. Not only that, it turns out that Henley is one of the partners in the project. He goes to Suzette to confront her about it. Henley shows up and there's an argument, but in the long run, it doesn't appear to get anyone anywhere. Things have gotten just plain terrible in Pimlico. The Teds, it turns out, are being directed by a guy named Flicker, who's played by Bruce Payne, and Flicker, in turn, is ultimately being given direction by Vendis and, Hartley, and, and Henley. But the Teds have gone far beyond their initial instruction, and they're really tearing up the place, mostly because they can. Between the Teds' actions and the heat, the entire area bursts into a race-related riot, which managed to extend itself into Notting Hill. Even though Colin hasn't taken sides, no matter where he goes, he's assumed to have taken the other side of the argument, and he can't seem to find a safe place to go. He runs into Suzette, and they take refuge in a nearby club where everything appears to be normal, as though there's nothing wrong going on outside, until a firebomb breaks through the window and the riot comes in. Colin and Suzette manage to escape, but they, along with Cool, are cornered by Flicker and some of his henchmen in a dark alley. Colin and Flicker begin to fight, but Colin is outmaneuvered, so Cool steps in. He and Flicker fight, and Cool gets the better of him by breaking the one source of light and making it tough for Flicker to see him. Just before he jams a broken bottle into Flicker's face, Cool decides he's not worth it, and he tosses the bottle away, an action that Suzanne literally applauds. It begins to rain, finally breaking the heat of the last several days. Colin and Suzette are reunited, and we see the rain pouring down over the Notting Hill neighborhood throughout the closing credits. And also during that credit, those closing credits, we also see that um, Harry Charms is holding up one of the uh, British tabloids, ostensibly weeping about what happened in the riots, but he's really weeping about the fact that his uh, client, Baby Boom, has secretly wed. Yes. So, shows you his priorities. So... This is a movie based on a novel by a British novelist named Colin McInnes, 
It was the second of a trilogy of novels that he wrote about London in the late 1950s. The first one was City of Spades, a rather unfortunate title. And the third one was Mr. Love and Justice. Absolute Beginners is the only one of those that I've read. And it's a pretty good novel. I'll get to the differences between the movie and the novel in a moment. But first, I want to bring up the fact that, as um, as Claude mentioned in the beginning part of the recap, uh, in London, or England in general, in the late 1950s, saw a lot of people, especially the youth, spending money and determined to feel good about themselves again after the horrors of World War II and the shortages that followed. Now, there's been a lot written about why the British invasion was able to take off like it did. We're talking about Events, of course, that happened in the early 60s with the Beatles and then the Stones and then the Who and then the second part of the British invasion, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and so on and so forth. There's a couple of sociological forces that I think seem to get forgotten about that should be pointed out as background to all of what was going on here. Uh, The first one, of course, was the Marshall Plan, the uh, plan put in by the U.S. government to lend money to Britain and other NATO countries after World War II to help them get back on their feet. And also, of course, to stop the spread of communism from encroaching upon those countries. But nevertheless, it did help all those countries get back on their feet. And then the other event that sort of helped with um, not only economically um, people, the younger generation being able to spend money, but also in sociological terms, there was uh, the repeal of the National Service Act of 1948, which... Up until that time, I think it was repealed in sometime in the late 50s, but up until that time, British men at the age of 21 were required to serve at least a year in the armed services after they finished school. And then after that, they would have been earmarked to get a job or do something. And imagine what it would have been like musically if that act had not been repealed. And so John Lennon and Mick Jagger and Pete Townsend et al. would not have been able to start their music careers the same way that they did and were able to after that act was repealed. So... Those are two major sociological events that helped shape late Britain of the 1950s. Another one, of course, uh, the U.S. did not have a monopoly on 
having bad racial relations with non-white people. And the novel Absolute Beginners and the movie are both inspired by the Notting Hill riots, which took place in 1958. Although the big difference between the actual event and the novel and the movie's depiction of it is that the victims in real life were Sikh Indian, whereas in both the novel and the movie, the victims are black folks. And if you might think this is all way too heavy for what's supposed to be a musical, I would say there's no law that musicals, like any other genre, can't be ambitious. And I would rather have a movie with too many ideas than none at all. And despite the fact that there's a lot to juggle here, those big ideas, the love story, the explosion of British youth, and the way people are cynically trying to capitalize on it. Overall, I think this movie works. What do you think, Claude? Do you think it's uh, Mick? Do you think it's uh, too much thrown in the stew, or do you think it's a stew that actually comes together? Well, I think you've thrown too much into the stew, and by that I mean yes, all of these things are important to to the background of what went on at that time. But I think they have that that that. In, in creating this story, they have basically managed to distill things a little bit more so that you, you don't necessarily have to know all these things or understand them too deeply in order to understand what's going on in this film. Okay, so whatever is really important has, in fact, been spelled out for you. So, you know, the fact that, you know, teenagers are you know, suddenly the cultural and economic force that they become. And that happened in the U.S. as well around the same time. And that, you know, suddenly that these are people with disposable income, which they didn't have previously, and that there were racial issues. Yeah, that they kind of oversimplified it by turning it into a black versus white kind of thing. But it still brings across the basic point that there is racial unrest, and it's not just in the United States. And and so it, it's kind of a minor quibble that you can overlook here. So, you know, none of that really takes away from your overall enjoyment of the film. And and to have, you know, a series of different uh, ideologies and, and thoughts and backgrounds coming together, you know, that doesn't necessarily kill a film from being kind of fun or enjoyable. And I know you're not like a fan of the traditional musical, but you know what? We had to start thinking about Nazis while we were watching The Sound of Music. So it does... In, in itself work all by itself without any real issues. We just know, hey, Nazis are there. Nazis are bad. We don't have to get into the whole, you know, Hitler invaded here and whatever else to get it into this position. I don't dislike the traditional musical. I just want a wider <laughs> definition of it. Okay, Although then. <laughs> I no longer uh, like the sound of music as much as I used to. But anyway, um, the movie does stick pretty or not pretty, but it does stick somewhat closely to the novel, even though um, Julian Temple, the director, and I'm going to back to him in a moment, brought in a couple of people, Richard Burridge and Don McPherson, and also Terry Johnson, to rewrite what original writer Christopher Wicking had wrote. Uh, there are a couple 
new characters thrown in. Um, Harry Charms and Baby Boom were not in the movie at all. Uh, we're not in the novel at all, excuse me. And um, the uh, family that Colin has, mostly his father, have bigger roles in the novel than they do in the movie. But overall, the movie does capture the feel of the novel, I think, which captured the feel of that time period. And one of the ways that's done is through the musical numbers. And there's a couple people we need to credit for that. The first one, obviously, is the director, Julian Temple. Now, when people talk about how MTV um, helped revolutionize Hollywood movie making uh, starting in the 1980s, and I can see both the good and the bad side in that, but anyway, they generally talk about the directors of music videos who became Hollywood directors in the 90s and beyond. People like David Fincher and Michelle Gondry and Spike Jonze. It's important to remember, though, they were not the first music video directors who tried their hand at directing movies. Before them, we had people like Mary Lambert, who um, directed a few of Madonna's videos and then also made movies as varied as uh, adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery and an uh, indie movie called Siesta. And then you also had Russell Mulcahy, best known for the first Highlander movie, uh, incomprehensible but weirdly compelling fantasy <laughs> movie with Christopher Lambert, Clancy Brown, and Sean Connery, and Julian Temple. Temple, technically speaking, didn't start out as a music video director. He had made documentaries, most notably the um, first... Um, Sex Pistols documentary, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, but then he directed music videos for The Rolling Stones, which, among other bands, and I mention that because those videos, believe it or not, were my introduction to the band. Uh, I'm thinking of the title track to Undercover, and also from that same album, She Was Hot, which featured mm -hmm. Anita Morris, who plays Dido. And he stages a lot of the set pieces that Claude mentioned in his recap, especially that opening number when Colin is narrating about London or Soho in the late 1950s and the summertime and all the people. And we've got what looks like this one long tracking shot, although it's broken up in a couple places whenever you see the camera freeze when Colin is taking, taking a photos, picture. Yeah. 
And it's all done to this instrumental jazz, really fast-paced music. And I'm going to get to the uh, person responsible for that in a moment. But in general, all the big set piece numbers, including the ones that you mentioned in the recap, Quiet Life and Killer Blow and Having It All are staged well, as well as another couple you didn't mention, um, Selling Out, which is what Colin and a bunch of people end up singing or lip-syncing to at Dido's party when Colin has uh, gotten stoned. Mm -hmm. And then also the dance party at the end after the fight between Cool and Flicker, but also a couple of the more quiet moments uh, come off pretty well also. After um, Suzette sings Having It All to Colin, when he's taking the ferry home, he lip syncs to Style Council's Have You Ever Had It Blue? And that's shot very simply, just him standing on the deck of the boat, lip syncing as the song plays. And that is done well. And as a musical, Temple handles, I think, all the music numbers very well. And he handles the rest of the movie as well, I think. He he does, I, and and yeah, I should I should uh, um, I should I should clarify a little bit as far as that opening shot. Yes, I mean it was it was the the cuts were kind of disguised by the flash of of him taking the photograph, but I, I think I, we're we're still given that intent of everything is going to look like one continuous kind of take. So I you know I'm basically running with it. I'll I'll, I'll take it in in that context. I mean I think of like. Um, Janet Jackson's When I Think of You was done pretty much the same way, where there were several cuts in the in this video, but they were so cleverly disguised, including, coincidentally, one of them being the flash of a camera. Uh, but but that was the only one in that particular case. But you, you still take it at, at, at face value. I'm not going to, you know, take away from it just because it, it's not a true lengthy take uh like we have talked about in say children of men or other films like of uh, uh, like like um um corona is done so uh and, and which is the same thing is is it looks like a very long take but there's actually a little bit of disguise going on and and making it you know not so much because as we talked about during children of men you know at one point you've got blood splatter all over the lens and another point it somehow disappeared and you're not sure how it happened, but that's okay. You, you, you take it and you just kind of run with it as far as the use of music and the, and the setup. Yeah. It all works out really well. Um, the production type numbers, you, you kind of ease right into them and they, they happen and it's not like, and I'm going to come back to that phrase, traditional musical where basically all the action stops, somebody sings a song and then people pretend like a song wasn't just sung. You know, this really becomes part of the overall dialogue of the film. And we've seen this several times already in, in the last, over the last few episodes, not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the one, I think the one song that's just kind of presented as a song is meant to be presented as a song. And that would be Charday's number killer blow because she is a performer and she is standing on a stage. So yes, there's a point where the action more or less stops for a little while while she gets a chance to sing. And I realize, you know, later on, before she's quite finished, we get where 
Colin learns about what's going on with Suzette and da-da-da-da-da, and it kind of interrupts the whole thing. But it's still really the only place where this is, where, where it looks like that, rather than almost almost uh, um, organically happening throughout the film. Right. And a large part of the credit for the music as well goes to the other person I was going to mention here, and that's Gil Evans. Yes. Gil Evans was the um, arranger for, well, the orchestrator of the score. He's best known for his collaborations with Miles Davis, including on an album of Davis's that may be his best known, which came out around this time, Kind of Blue. And near the end, we have sort of a um, loose, uh, loosely based song based on his most famous composition from that album, So What?, uh, that's the song that they're all dancing in the streets to. But he does a good job orchestrating all the instrumental music that you hear throughout the movie, which adds to the subtext and the tempo of the movie. Because remember, you know, music and editing and things like that, they add to the tempo of a movie along with their other functions. Yeah, and it's worth and, noting also that 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 Temple actually gives Evans a little bit of a shout out, really twice. Uh, is first is when Colin goes into Cool's apartment and there's a copy of the of a Miles Davis album which Evans worked on. All right, sketches in Spain. Uh, Sketches of Spain is near the end. Um, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm thinking of Porgy and Bess, actually. Um, oh, okay. And then, yeah, and then later on in the film, we get, it's actually a, a still from uh, from that album, and it's the two of them together in the picture, Davis and Evans. Right. So, um, so as I said, yeah, he deserves a lot of credit. And then all of the people performing the songs do a very good job, obviously, mm -hmm. Bowie, uh, Ray Davies, and Sade uh, are trained at this, so they know how to sing, and they do a good job of singing it. Now, um, I don't... Oh, yes, and Patsy Kensett did use her own voice yeah. for singing Having It All, and she does a good job singing as well. Now, Bowie sings uh, not only That's Motivation, but he also sings uh, the title track, Absolute Beginners, which even though the movie was not popular, the song did quite well on the charts. And bizarrely, he also sings Volare at one point <laughs> when he's in the car with Colin. And... Um, you know, like I said, singing-wise, Bowie has nothing to be ashamed of here. Acting-wise, it's a little bit of a different story, and there's a specific reason I'm bringing that up. Mm. It's not the it's not his performance as a villain. He's oily, smooth, has that down perfect. It's the accent. He's attempting to put on an American accent, and apparently it's true to life. 
but it's annoying as hell and it didn't work for me at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a little bit distracting and there were also times when he really wasn't quite holding it either. I mean, for the most part he did a good job and but but there and and it's it's one of these things that that I I I find myself hearing every now and again when an actor is doing an accent outside of what they would ordinarily do. And sometimes it's like really bad and you just have to be like, can you decide which accent you're going to do here? Uh, you know, with Bowie, it was just you know, the, the occasional slip up and, and it, yeah, it just sounded weird coming out of him, I think. Right. Now, Bowie and Ray Davies are not the only major figures uh, who were around in the 60s to appear in the movie. Colin's mother is played by Mandy Rice Davies, who may not be a name familiar to most of you unless you've heard of the Profumo scandal, in which uh, a stripper slash uh, prostitute named Christine Keeler was involved with a British minister by the last name of Profumo, Profumo, excuse me, and a Russian minister as well. And that scandal, which was the subject of a very good movie from 1989 called Scandal yeah. with Joanne Wally as Christine Keeler, um, eventually brought down the British government of the early 60s, causing the prime minister to resign. And Mandy Rice Davies was Christine Keeler's one-time friend and a co-worker, and that she was also a stripper and prostitute. And so she's a figure of import here. And then we also have a couple of people who are in this before they became famous. There's an Italian fishmonger in the movie named Mario, who's played by Hagrid himself, Robbie, the late, great Robbie Coltrane, and also um, Stephen Burkoff at the time, as you mentioned, who plays the fanatic, who's inspired by a British uh, version of David Duke, Oswald Mosley, um, he was best known at the time for playing the bad guy in the first Beverly Hills Cop movie. And Bruce Payne, who plays Flicker, um, he would later go on to appear in such things as uh, a diehard ripoff, Passenger 57. <laughs> And he's done a ton of TV as well. But then I think there's one other here. Oh, also, um, there's a uh, mod guy who is, and we'll be talking about mods uh, in a future episode. Uh, but there's a mod guy who's part of Colin's circle of friends, who's played by Paul Reese who would better be known playing Theo in Robert Altman's underrated movie about Vincent Van Gogh, Vincent Theo. So there's a few before they became famous here, people. 
And unfortunately, because the movie did not do well at the box office, it killed Eddie O'Connell's chances of having a career. And I think that's too bad. I mean, he's not great, but I think he performs the part pretty well. And also Patsy Kensett, although she would later appear in Lethal Weapon 2 as uh, Mel Gibson's love interest, and she'd do a lot of other movies besides. Her career was never as big as people thought it would be before this movie came out, and there was a lot of promotion involved with this movie before it came out. They even had a contest, as I recall, on MTV to see if anyone wanted to be an extra in the movie, but she does a good job playing Suzette as well for handling the musical number, but also the dramatic parts and the romantic parts as well. Yeah, I think she did a pretty solid job, actually. Both of them did, you know, uh, but let me let me stick with with Patsy Kens for a sec. Um, Lethal Weapon 2 was probably my entry to her to her work and yeah i liked her a lot actually and i kind of expected to see her doing a lot more and you know it's not that she had no film career afterwards i mean there was some but i think she really just kind of made it more in television and especially in british television we we didn't see too much of her as, as americans anymore um not 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 to say not at all, but just nah, not not so much. Um, and then similar, like yeah, Eddie O'Connell, yeah, he did he did an okay, he did a solid job. I, I I think one of the reasons he was cast is because he looked a little bit like Bowie, but I think that was also a deliberate choice because this is somebody who's kind of being cast in the in that similar mold. Okay, because like whoever had been cast. As partners, they were going to find somebody who looked like partners a little bit to be Colin, if, if that makes sense to, to you. No, it does make sense. And two other actors we should mention as well. Lionel Blair is perfect as the absolutely smarmy Harry Charms. Yeah. Among other things, his uh, character is later revealed to, I think, to be a pedophile, if uh I'm remembering this correctly. And uh, he was actually not British. He was born in Quebec, but he's very convincing as a British uh, actor. And actually, uh, I was going to bring the fact, bring up the fact that Kenzet uh, was in another music related movie that came out after this that she did very well in. Uh, she was. She played a character loosely based on Cynthia Whale in Alison Andrews' tribute to the Brill Building, Grace of My Heart. Mm. And it turns out Lionel Blair, among many, many, many other things that he did, played the TV choreographer in A Hard Day's Night. I had completely forgotten about that until I just looked it up here on IMDb. And then the other person we should mention here, of course, is James Fox. Now, we're going to talk in a future episode about 
a role where he plays against type, but for the most part, Fox played upper class types, government officials, um, spies, um, businessmen like the character he plays here in Absolute Beginners. And if his role here doesn't really stretch his abilities too much, at least he is convincing at hiding his villainy until it comes out later in the movie and giving some nice dry line readings as well. Yeah, I think I think most most people, at least in the States at this point, would, would recognize him as the father of Veruca Salt in the Tim Burton version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Okay, but wasn't that a flop? It, no, I don't think it, 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 it didn't get awesome reviews because I think because it was so com- heavily compared to the original, but it's definitely got its charms. I kind of like that. I'm not saying I, it's as good as, as, as the original version, but, but met, there's a lot I of, met, I met box office. Mm, I, My understanding is that it didn't do well with critics or audiences. Well, we look, see the IMDB rating for that film is 6.7. So yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I don't, okay. I don't know. I kind of well, maybe maybe just because of the music. I, I enjoyed the way that the Oompa Loompas were given like a different song to sing every time, and each song had its yeah. own genre going on. I just thought that was a cool touch that Burton put into the film. Now, for what it's worth, as far as uh, Bowie's reaction to the movie, I've read different things. When um, he was still in the middle of his low point. Well, what many people consider as low point as far as music, his music career goes. In 1987, he gave an interview with Rolling Stone, and they asked him about this movie, among other things. And he said that he liked the movie and thought it would turn out to be a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show cult-type hit. And then a few years later, apparently, he gave another interview where he said that Temple did a lot of great set pieces that unfortunately, as far as he was concerned, did not add up to a whole movie. Now, for what it's worth, the movie was apparently taken away from Temple in the editing room, which might be why some critics, as I said, thought it was... uh, uh, stew with too many elements in it to really come together. But also, for what it's worth, the movie does have some pretty famous fans of it. You mentioned Janet Jackson. And according to Temple, Martin Scorsese also called him up to praise how he handled the opening sequence of the movie after the credits, that whole one continuous take uh, music number. And we should also credit, of course, Oliver Stapleton, who was the cinematographer, and the four people who helped edit the movie, Richard Bedford, Michael Bradsell, Jerry Hambling, and Russell Lloyd. Yeah, but I think your comment there about Scorsese specifically being a fan of that opening sequence really points to the earlier comments about like there might have been too much going on. And I think that's the thing that kind of hurts this film a little bit is that it's almost like one of those, it's a little bit lesser than the sum of its parts. 
and 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 so I kind of I kind of get that criticism that there's like a lot of good stuff going together, but it doesn't always come together to make a really great piece of film. It's good, it's fun. I like his film, but you know, it, it wouldn't be necessarily a go-to for me. Well, as I said, I'd rather a movie with too many ideas than with none at all. Yeah, it's but ambitious, anyway. and I you, you gotta appreciate that. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Yeah, just just a little bit of trivia here. Is that that scene that's inspiration with Bowie like dancing on the giant turntable? That's motivation. That's motive. You said that's inspiration. It's that's motivation. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there's there's a record on that that he's on there. There's a giant a giant record in that set, and uh, the band on the record is called the Hidden Persuaders, and that is actually yes. a nice little nod to a book of the same title, which believe it or not, I read in high school. I don't know. I, I had this period where I was very, very interested in advertising and I read several books by famous advertisers, uh, advertising, uh, executives. And that was one of them. So yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a shout out to, uh, it was, a uh, Vance Packard was the, was the writer. Yes. Was the author's name. And there. Bowie actually was a fan of that book as well. Apparently. Mm -hmm. so. Okay. So coming up immediately after this, part two, we'll talk about Labyrinth. That's following immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around.